Well, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're starting a series this fall on 1 Peter. So we're excited to be jumping into it. We're going to look uh, just at the first couple verses, just a real short passage this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, as Brian and I were studying the book of 1 Peter and preparing for this series, uh, we came to, to believe that, that Peter's big idea, what he's trying to communicate in all of this book, is the good life. That's what the book of 1 Peter is about. It's about the good life, how to find the good life, where to live the good life. Now, we thought that we would start this series by going and asking some residents of Bryan College Station what they thought about the good life. So we went to the cultural center of Bryan College Station, to the local HEB, to ask people what they thought about the good life. The good life, period. What, if you had blueprints for that, what would you put on it? Good life, I would, I would say definitely college. And right here we have come for attending Texas A&M. So we're probably we're looking for the good life in Texas. Work hard, party harder. What, is, what does a good life mean to you? Um, surrounded by people that love me and care about me. And um, I'm doing something that I love. I'm doing good in school. Having freedom. Uh, freedom to choose. Freedom to do what you want to do. Uh, the good life in Texas. Uh... Aggie's winning, I guess. All the stuff you learn in kindergarten. All the easy things, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Um, you know, be nice to your friends. You know, freedom to work, freedom to have your own business if you want to. The freedom to have different religions and, and everything that you appreciate freedom-wise in this country that we have. Just being financially stable and uh, just, like, having good health. It's not complicated, you know. And people just try to make it like it's a... Like, there's something hard about it, but you just uh, got to go to the basics. Um, have you heard the, the slogan in Brian, it's a good life Texas style? Have you heard that? Okay, so what does a good life, individually, what does a good life mean to you? Uh, financial stability, good job, and you know, happy family life. Um, so if that is the good life, is that is, would you characterize your life like that? Yeah, actually, I would right now at this point. I mean, there's times where I'm quest- I question it, but I would say right now... Today, yes, I, I think so. Would you say that you, uh, if you know, if that was your blueprint, would you say that you're hitting all the check marks? Would you say you're be, you're living the good life? <laughs> well, I try to. <laughs> it's um, it's harder than it sounds, I guess. But um, yeah, I like to think I, I do. The good life. Everybody wants to live the good life, but what is the good life? How do you define the good life? According to most of the people in the video, if you, if you listen to their responses, uh, the good life is a life of pleasant circumstances. That's most of what they list. They list some very significant, important circumstances in life, like a, a loving family and, and good health and a satisfying job and financial security. And most important of all, the Aggies winning. Those are, those are all important circumstances. Those are good circumstances. That's the common view, not just of the video, but of this world. A good life is a life founded upon good or pleasant circumstances. Uh, but there's, there's a couple problems with that view. 
The first is that it is inherently insecure. Our our circumstances are inherently insecure because we don't control them. You you can't control any of those circumstances. You you can't control whether the Aggies win. We we hope and we pray, but it's outside of our power to control. And, And I think if the recession in the last two years has taught us anything, it's taught us that we can't count on a satisfying job. We, we can't control financial stability. That's, that's out of our hands. And, and even a loving family, you, you can't make your parents love you and your kids love you. You can't control any of that. A good life founded upon pleasant circumstances is inherently insecure. It's also temporary. None of those circumstances lasts. You might have a satisfying job now, but what about next year if the economy continues to go downhill? Uh, Even a loving family, what happens when they move away, when they get sick, when they die? Uh, Those circumstances don't last. And, And even if you get to enjoy those circumstances for much of this life, none of them make it into the next life. When you stand before God, what he's going to care about is not whether you had a satisfying job or whether you had financial security or, or not whether the Aggies won. None of that is going to matter in God's view of things. None of those circumstances make it to the next life. If you're looking for the good life in pleasant circumstances, you are guaranteed to be disappointed because circumstances are insecure and temporary. So what is the good life? How do we answer that question? Well, uh, there's probably no better place to go than to look at how God answers the question because he created life. He he is the designer of life. So by definition, he's going to know what the best life is, what good life is. And, And fortunately for us throughout scripture, God has, has been teaching us, has been revealing to us the nature of the good life. And, and he does that particularly in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is uniquely focused on this question of what is the good life? How do you live the good life? So this semester, we're going to walk through 1 Peter. And, and I'm going to kind of give away the big idea right now. I'm going to tell you what we're going to discover as we go through 1 Peter this semester. What we're going to discover is that the good life is not about circumstances. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And I want you to follow me for a moment. I I would think that all of us would probably agree that the best life ever lived was the life lived by Jesus Christ. He lived the best good life ever. He, He enjoyed more joy and peace and significance than any other human being ever. Even in the midst of painful and difficult circumstances, he still lived the best life during his earthly life. And then, and then when his earthly life came to an end, he was raised to the father's right hand where he was showered with glory and honor for all of eternity. Jesus lived the best good life ever. And so, if we want to live the good life, we must follow Jesus Christ. That's, that's the logical definition of the good life. He lived the best good life ever. So if you want to live the good life, you must be like him. The good life is the imitation of Jesus Christ. The closer you imitate the example of Jesus Christ, the closer you come to God's definition of the good life. And so 1 Peter, from beginning to end, is designed to help us to imitate Jesus Christ in every area of life. And and Peter is going to start into that subject right at the beginning of the letter. Peter doesn't waste space. Uh, The first two verses are just the greeting of the letter, but they're theologically packed. They're full of Peter's revelation about the good life. And so look with me, starting in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. We're just going to look at the first two verses this morning. Peter starts out. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, right here at the beginning of the letter, Peter reveals to us the foundation of the good life. What is the good life built upon? Well, well, not circumstances. Peter reveals that the key word of verses 1 and 2, chosen. It can be translated elect, eklektois in Greek. It means those who are chosen out of a larger group, individuals who are selected. That's the big idea. The foundation of the good life is in our circumstances. It is the election of God. Now, this idea of elect, it's actually uh, not that hard to understand the basic idea. Election is going on all around us. Uh, It was going on while you were growing up. Every day at recess, you saw election at work. The recess bell rings. You all run outside. Somebody grabs a football or a a soccer ball or a dodgeball, and you form a big circle around the two most athletic kids who are automatically the team captains, and they begin to select individual students to be on their team. That's election. You're selecting particular individuals out of a larger group. Now, that concept is common in Scripture. There's a a lot of different groups and individuals who are called elect in Scripture. The nation of Israel is elect. The, The Levitical priests are elect. Jeremiah the prophet is elect. Cyrus the Persian king is elect. Jesus Christ is elect. And and then there's a group that Peter has in mind here. What is Peter talking about by the elect? He's talking about those who have been chosen by God for salvation. That's the elect he's talking about. That out of all of humanity, God chose particular individuals to be saved. That's Peter's elect in this passage. Now, um, when when you look at that, uh, it should bring a question to our mind. Why must God elect for people to be saved? How does election fit into salvation? The Bible tells us that that Jesus died for the sins of all of humanity. Jesus died for all people. And the Bible goes on to tell us that God desires all human beings to be saved. So why do we need election? Where does election fit into that? Well, the Bible also tells us something else. The Bible reveals to us in, in no uncertain terms that left to ourselves, no human being will ever choose salvation. No human being will ever choose to believe the gospel. No human being will ever choose to align themselves with God. All of us will choose to reject God. Let me show you a couple key passages, a lot more we could cover, but a couple ones that stand out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. To human beings in their natural state, when when we see the gospel, when we hear the gospel, every single one of us chalks it up as foolishness. All human beings, without exception, if left to themselves, will decide that the gospel is foolishness. Paul goes on in one of the most significant passages of scripture, Romans chapter one, he tells us, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man." 
Paul is telling us that since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, from that point on, all of humanity, without exception, has been able to see God in creation, but freely chooses to reject him. God has revealed himself in the natural world. He's revealed himself in the human heart. We all can see God at work, and yet all human beings, without exception, freely choose to reject him. That's the natural human response. We raise the fist and rebel against God. That's what all human beings choose to do. We do not embrace the gospel. We embrace rebellion. So as Paul pictures humanity in this scene, he he pictures God reaching down from heaven with this priceless gift of salvation and all of humanity in unison, turning their backs to him and running away. That's what all human beings do by nature. We all reject God. That's why he must elect. That's where election fits in. Because all of us reject the gospel, God must elect. An election pictures God reaching down from eternity past and choosing particular individuals from among this whole mass of humanity that is running from him and grabbing hold of those particular individuals and turning them around and opening their eyes to understand and believe the gospel. That's election. Now, now Peter wants us to understand election better, and so he unpacks it in verse 2. He begins to lay out for us a number of truths about election, actually four things he wants us to know about our election. The first, if you look at the beginning of verse 2, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The basis of our election is the foreknowledge of God. Now, foreknowledge means to know something before it happens. What does God know before it happens? Well, everything. God knows all things past, present, and future. He's always known all things past, present, and future. Psalm 139 tells us, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there, were, there was not one of them. Among all the things that God has always known is everything about you. He has always known you in infinite detail for all of eternity. He has always known everything that you would be, everything that you would do, everything that you would think, everything that you would say. He's always known it. There, there has never been a time in all of history in which God did not know you in perfect detail. And it is out of that perfect knowledge of you that God's election flows. He elects you based on his perfect knowledge of you. Now, now let's ask ourselves, what is it that God knows about us that motivates his election? Does he know that I'm going to be a worthy candidate of election? Is that why he chose me? Or does he know that I'm more likely to believe the gospel, that if he gives it to me, I'll accept it? Well, that's how election worked on the recess playground, didn't it? You were chosen based on your worth. If you were athletic, the team captain chose you. That's why I, I was never chosen. I was, I was the kid off on the swing set. I was always the second shortest kid in whatever grade of elementary school I was in. I was never picked because election at recess is based on worth. It's based on merit. But that's not how God's election works. Remember Romans chapter one, none of us has merit. None of us would choose to believe the gospel. If, if God's election was based on our future merit or our future willingness to believe, how many elect people would there be in the history of the world? Zero. Because none of us are worthy. None of us would freely choose the gospel. Election's not based on our, on our worth or on our willingness to believe. It's based on something else. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter one, He that is the father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. 
What Paul is telling us is what motivated God to choose you from eternity past for salvation is not your merit, it's not your worth, it's not your willingness to believe, it's his love. His unconditional love is what motivated him to choose you for salvation. That's the basis of his choice. He knew you and chose to love you. That's why you're elect. Now, as we look at this, that that brings some questions to our mind. I don't know about you, but I I start to study this doctrine and, and some questions pop up in my mind. I'd like to address those. First question that comes up in my mind. Okay, um, why did God choose to lovingly elect me and not John Doe living down the street? Why did he choose to elect this person in love and not this person? Well, I don't know. Bible never tells us. God never explains himself. He doesn't tell us why he chose to love me and not my neighbor. I do know that it's not because I'm more worthy. I'm not a better person than John Doe. I'm not more likely to believe than John Doe. We are equally without merit. We are equally unlikely to believe the gospel. All I know is that in love, God chose me. And man, I'm thankful for that. I'm incredibly thankful that God elected me. Now, for a lot of us, that raises a second question. Man, isn't... Isn't that unfair? Isn't election unfair that God would choose one of us to be saved and not choose another? Isn't this whole election thing unfair? Uh, To which the Bible responds, uh, yes, it is unfair. Let's, Let's think for a moment, what would we get if God treated us fairly? Fair means that you give everyone exactly what they deserve. What would happen if God gave us what was fair? we would all spend eternity in hell. That's fair. We are all rebels. We have all disobeyed God. All of us would end up in hell. God is not fair. Thank God. God's not fair. He's gracious. That's the beauty of election. We don't have a fair God. We have a gracious God. So is election unfair? Yes, it is. Praise God that he's not fair or we would all be condemned. Now, some of you at this point, you're wondering a third question. You're wondering, uh, Blake, why in the world are you starting the fall series on a topic like election? (laughs) What are you doing starting with something so controversial? Well, Peter kind of forced my hand. The word elect is actually the fifth word in Greek of the book of 1 Peter. I had to deal with it. Uh, So so why does Peter start a letter with with a subject that's so controversial? Why start with election? Well, it's important for us to remember uh, when Peter talked about election to his original audience, it wasn't controversial at all. Actually, election was never meant to be controversial. It was meant to be a source of incredible security. If you really understand the theology of election, it's actually one of the greatest sources of peace in your life. That's what God intended it to be. Election says that before time began, God knew everything about you in complete detail. He knew everything that you would say and do and think, including all the bad stuff including all the ugly stuff and and shameful stuff. He knew it all, and yet he still chose you. His choice has nothing to do with what you do. It's based on his love. And so if he freely chose you before time began, knowing all that you would do, then then if in this life, if you don't prove worthy, it doesn't matter. He's not going to abandon you because his choice is based on his love, not on our actions. Election is an incredible source of security in our lives. It's an incredible source of peace for us. That's why Peter mentions it right out of the gate in this book. He wants us to know that we are elect and that election brings incredible security. God will never abandon us because he has known us in complete and exhaustive detail from before time began. And knowing even all the bad stuff, he still chose us 
for salvation. That's what election is about. It's about peace and security, not controversy. So the first thing that Peter unpacks in verse 2 is that our election is not based on our merit or our worth. It's based on the foreknowledge of God, his loving choice of us. Second thing he tells us is that it is accomplished by the Spirit's sanctifying work. The Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes our election by sanctifying us. Sanctify, it means to, to set apart. It pictures the Holy Spirit reaching down into the whole mass of humanity who are rebelling against God and grabbing particular individuals and setting them apart as different, as distinct. Now, now that's actually a major theme throughout 1 Peter that we're going to see over and over again. In a couple weeks, in the middle of chapter 1, Peter is going to challenge us to be holy as the Father is holy. It's actually the same root word in Greek, sanctify, holy. It means to set apart from the sin and rebellion of the world. Okay, so Peter's going to keep coming back to this idea. What he wants us to see right now is that, that we don't get into the elect through our works. And, and we don't get into the elect through our faith. It's God who makes us a part of the elect. It's his spirit who pulls us out of the mass of humanity and sets us in the group of the elect. It's him who does it. Third thing that Peter wants us to understand is found in the the next phrase of verse two. It says to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It's actually a pretty challenging phrase to interpret, pretty tough in the Greek. I think what Peter is saying here is that the purpose of our election is so that we would believe and be saved by the son. Peter is using covenantal language here. He, he's alluding back to the book of Exodus when God gave to the nation of Israel the gift of the Mosaic covenant. And then in that account in Exodus 24, uh, as God reaches down to give them this Mosaic covenant, the people say to God, all that you have commanded, we will do. They, they swear their obedience. And as a result, God has Moses sprinkle them with blood and they become recipients of the Mosaic covenant. I think Peter's picking up that picture, that illusion, and he's applying it to us because we also have received a covenant. Salvation is the reception of a covenant, not, not the Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant. The, the new covenant, you may have, may have heard of that. You see it often in scripture. Uh, God promised it towards the end of the Old Testament, this new covenant that would bring forgiveness of your sins and it would bring the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the, the whole gift of salvation. God promised it then, but when did the new covenant begin? You guys know? actually celebrated about every month here at church in communion. It began at the Lord's Supper, began at the death of Christ. You remember at the Lord's Supper, he holds up the cup and he says, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant given for you. Jesus is instituting the new covenant at that moment. When he dies, it's his blood that makes us a part of the new covenant. Now, what's required for us to enter into the new covenant? Well, uh, just like it was for uh, the Israelites back under Moses, what's required, Peter tells us, is obedience. Uh, But you look at that word obedience, you think, what is Peter talking about? Obedience to what? He's not talking here about obedient works or obedient actions. Uh, We're actually learning through the Bible that that obedience like that, good works, that flows as a result of the new covenant. That's not the entry requirement of the new covenant. What Peter's talking about here is obedience to the God. Gospel. Obedience to the news that Jesus wants to sprinkle you with his blood for salvation. Uh, Paul talks about this in, in Romans chapter 1. 
He says, through whom, that is Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. That's, that's what Peter's talking about. What gets us into the new covenant is obedience of faith. It's the obedience to the gospel. It's obedience to the news that Jesus died for our sins as our sacrifice and rose from the dead and offers us the free gift of eternal life. That's the gospel. If you believe it, then you are joined into the new covenant. The moment that you believe the gospel, God sprinkles you with the blood of Christ. You are covered with the worth of Christ and you are forever saved. So that's what Peter is picturing here. The purpose of God's election, the reason that God elected us was so that we would believe in the gospel and be saved by the son. That's the purpose of our election. Now, it's interesting to me to, to note that in the same breath and in, in the same sentence, Peter mentions both God's sovereign election and our responsibility to believe. God elects and we must obey the gospel. It's interesting in Peter's mind, there is no competition between God's sovereignty and his election and our responsibility to believe, our human responsibility. Peter sees those fitting together perfectly. Now, a a lot of Christians are going to tell you that you actually have to choose one of those, that either God is sovereign in election or we are responsible to believe. You can't have both of them. So you have Calvinists picking this one over here. You have Arminians picking this one over here. and, And I'm here to tell you both are true. God is absolutely sovereign in election. You can't be saved unless you are elect. And yet we are responsible to believe. You can't be saved unless you believe. Both are true. It reminds me a lot of um, dessert after Thanksgiving dinner. In my family, somebody's going to invariably bake a, a pumpkin pie and, and somebody else is going to invariably bake a, a chocolate pie. And, and at some point in the afternoon, my, my wife's going to come to me and ask, uh, Blake, which do you want? Do you want the pumpkin pie or the chocolate pie? To which I respond, I want both. The, they're both good. Neither of them cost me anything. I, I want them all. And while you're up, can you throw in some ice cream too? Because it's all good. I, I want it all. And that, that's what Peter has for us. You don't have to pick between God's sovereignty and election and our responsibility to believe. Both are true. Accept them both. It's a false dilemma to think you have to choose. They're both true. They're both good. They're both important. Peter wants us to embrace both of them. God is sovereign in our election and we are responsible to believe. It's the third thing he lays out for us. Now, Peter has one more thing to teach us about our election. It's actually back up in verse one. I skipped it while we were going through here. Uh, He has one more thing to teach us. It's actually the result of our election. And and it's easier to see if I I read it to you in a different translation rather than the NAS. I'm going to read it to you in the ESV. They They get this just right. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter wants us to understand that the unavoidable result of election by God is exile in this world. Those who are chosen in God's sight are exiles in the sight of this world. Now, that word exile, it means somebody who is a foreigner, someone who does not have citizenship in the country in which they are living. That's what Peter says of us. We don't have citizenship here. We are, to use modern lingo, resident aliens on earth. He goes on to describe our exile. He says we are exiles of the dispersion. It's actually a technical term used in scripture to refer to Jews who were scattered throughout the nations of the earth after the Babylonian exile. It's a word that talks about the fact that in whatever city they lived in, they were always minorities. They were always the minority status. They never fit in. They were always exiles living within whatever country they were in. So Peter wants us to understand we are all 
exiles. If we are elect, then we are exiles. And, and Peter is referring in this book to, to five particular regions of those elect exiles throughout the earth, just to give you a little background. His letter is written to these five portions of the Roman Empire, Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, all part of modern day Turkey. But he's not really just talking to those people. He's talking to all Christians, no matter what country we live on, on the planet earth. Peter wants us to understand we are exiles. We are foreigners here. He's telling us that because he wants us to understand two things. Number one, because we are exiles, this world is in our home. As those who are elect of God, this world is not our home. Where is our home? Our home is wherever Jesus is. He's not here, so this is not our home. Our home is the next life when we stand with Jesus Christ. The moment that you trusted in the gospel, the moment that you believed and God sprinkled with you with the blood of Christ, at that moment, you forfeited your earthly citizenship. No, no matter what country you live on in the, uh, anywhere on the planet Earth, you are not a citizen of that country. You're not a citizen of this planet. We are exiles here. This world is not our home. Our home is the next world. That's what we look forward to. That's what we long for. Now, because of that, because we are resident aliens here, because this is not our home, because we do not fit in, as a result, second thing that Peter wants us to understand is we're going to face opposition in this life. That's why he calls us exiles. He wants us to understand as exiles on earth, you should expect opposition. Opposition shouldn't surprise you. You are going to face opposition from this world. Uh, it's, it's actually really easy to prove that using Peter's logic. Um, if the good life is the imitation of Christ, is following Jesus Christ, well, how did this world treat Jesus? Pretty poorly. They opposed Jesus at every turn. They persecuted him. They oppressed him. As a result, if we follow in the steps of Jesus, what should we expect to face? That same persecution, that same opposition. That's what exiles on earth should expect. And Peter tells us that that opposition from the world, it's gonna come in a couple different forms. First, we're gonna be opposed by the world in the sense that the world is gonna seek constantly to conform us to its image. That's the first way that the world opposes us. When we imitate Jesus Christ, that's, that's really convicting to the people around us. The world doesn't really like to be convicted. They don't like when we act like Jesus. So everything in this world, every time you encounter the world, you're gonna see this pull, this tug upon you to pull you away from Jesus and towards the example of the world. You see that in mass media. You see that in popular culture. You see that at your jobs. You see that at school. Everything in this world is designed to conform you to its image. The world does not want you to be like Jesus Christ. That's too convicting for them. They're gonna try to conform you to their likeness. That's the first type of opposition that we'll face is this tug to conform us to the world. The second type of opposition that Peter's gonna lay out for us, particularly in the second half of the book, is that for many believers in this world, opposition's not just gonna be this, this desire to conform you. It's gonna, it's gonna move all the way to overt persecution. Second half of the book is gonna be dedicated to those Christians who are facing persecution for their faith who like Jesus are being arrested and beaten and murdered. That's what's going on to so many of our brothers and sisters around the planet. I was talking to somebody after the first service and we were reflecting on the fact that the, the reality that he, we here in America don't face persecution for our faith, that's actually really abnormal in the Christian life. If you look at all of Christian history, this is a really abnormal time. This, this is really just God's grace to us that we don't face persecution very much for our faith in this country. I don't think we should expect that to last. Because that's not normal. Normal is that we're persecuted. Normal is that we face the same destiny of Jesus Christ, that he was persecuted, arrested, beaten, and murdered. That's what Christians should expect in this world because this world is not our home. 
We are exiles here. God wants us to understand right at the beginning of the book of 1 Peter, we are elect exiles on earth. That's the foundation of the good life. You want to live the good life. It's not founded upon your circumstances. Circumstances have nothing to do with it. It's founded upon your identity as elect exiles on earth. That's what the good life is based upon. And and that's really actually kind of the irony of the good life. The people in the video, they talked about how the good life, it's based on pleasant circumstances, but we look at the life of Christ and we realize actually the good life usually happens in the midst of unpleasant circumstances. As, as elect exiles on earth, our life is going to be characterized not by pleasant things, but by, by difficulty and suffering and struggle. That's the normal experience of people who are living the good life, just like Jesus. He lived the best life ever, and yet it was characterized by suffering and struggle and difficulty. Peter wants us to understand good life. It's not founded upon your circumstances. It's founded upon your new identity as the elect exiles of God on earth. Actually, those, those two words lead us to, to our application this morning. How do we apply this idea of being elect exiles? First application is make sure you're one of the elect. Obviously, from this passage, you want to be part of God's elect. That's, that's a good thing. You, you want to be part of God's elect. So how can you know if you are elect? That's actually really simple. Just ask yourself a question. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, and gives you eternal life through faith alone? If you believe that message, then you are elect. You have to be elect because no human being can believe the gospel apart from God's election. If you believe the gospel, you are elect. You never have to worry about it again. You don't have to be anxious. Oh, am I elect or not? This whole election thing, it throws me. No, God wants you to be secure. If you believe the gospel, you are for sure guaranteed part of God's elect. You will be saved. You will spend eternity with him in heaven. If you believe, you are elect. Now, what if you don't believe? Well, you can only prove one side of the election question. You can prove you are elect if you believe. If you don't believe, you aren't necessarily unelect. It just means you need more time. Maybe there's something holding you back. Maybe you have some intellectual objection to the gospel. You just can't believe that Jesus Christ could rise from the dead. Or, or maybe you have um, some practical objection. You just can't believe that God would accept you independent of any good works. That you don't have to do anything to get to heaven. That's just crazy to you. Uh, let me encourage you, if that's where you are, if you struggle to believe the gospel, what, what Peter wants you to do this morning, what God wants you to do, is to continue to wrestle with the good news of the gospel. Continue to wrestle with it. Come, come talk to me or another leader here at the church. Pray that God would help you to, to see what is truth. Continue to wrestle with it because there's nothing more important that you will ever do than to wrestle with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Everything about the good life begins with belief. You have to believe the gospel. So continue to wrestle with that. Now, for those of us who have chosen to believe the gospel, I think Peter's application for us this morning is that as elect exiles on earth, We need to band together. When you look at at foreigners living in any country on earth, how do they survive in the midst of a foreign city? They band together for encouragement and support. Uh, I I spent about 10 years ago, I spent a month in Central Asia in one of the former Soviet republics. And um, it was a really amazing trip, really eye-opening trip. I, I remember this one day, I'm walking down the street of this very foreign city. It was a Muslim city. It was nothing like the Western world. I remember walking down the street and, and turning the corner and being shocked to see in the middle of Muslim Central Asia, Patrick's Irish Pub. Right there on the street, Patrick's Irish Pub, authentic Irish pub. It had the green shamrock out front. It had people drinking green beer. It was, it was a thing. It was, a, it was Patrick's Irish Pub. And, and as I'm walking down the street, I'm thinking, how does that place do business here? 
How does that place stay in business in a Muslim country? You know, Muslims are not supposed to drink alcohol. That's, that's kind of game over for an Irish pub. So how are they doing business? Well, it turns out that in this Central Asian Republic, there were lots of Westerners coming over to do business. And after a whole day of doing business with people who spoke a different language than them, from people who lived differently from them, they couldn't wait to gather together that night at Patrick's Irish Pub and hang out with people who thought like them and spoke like them and acted like them and drank like them. That's what they wanted, to, to gather together with other four foreigners for support. Well, that's a principle that applies to us. The way that we survive life in a hostile world, the way that we survive as as exiles who don't belong here is by banding together, by gathering together with one another for support and encouragement and accountability. And what we have for you, what I would challenge you to do to get that time with other exiles is to join a small group. That's what small groups are all about. Small groups are small communities where you band together with other elect exiles for encouragement and for edification and for challenge and for accountability. That's what a small group is. We gather with one another so that we can survive life in a hostile world, so that we can walk in the good life, imitating the example of Jesus Christ. If you want to succeed in the imitation of Christ, you can't do it alone. You have to do it with other people, with other exiles. So I challenge you this semester, join a small group Bible study. Join a small group. We have lots of options here at the church if you'd like to join one with us. I would point you to that Get Connected sheet that you have in your bulletin if you received that this morning. Uh, You can look at that. It's got all of our options here for for small groups at Grace Bible Church, both on the front and the back. We've got options for every life stage, single, married. We've got options for college students, adults, parents, kids, options in the home, options at church, options on Sunday morning, options during nights of the week, all kinds of options. Just pick one that fits you. Pick one that meets you where you are in life and sign up for it. Join a small group. That's the only way you're going to survive life in a hostile world. So look over these different options. You can sign up or find out more information online this afternoon. If you'd rather just get it done now and sign up, uh, when I dismiss you in a moment, you can go out in the foyer. There's some tables there where you can sign up for a small group or ask questions if you have questions about any of our small groups. Whatever option you pick, please join a small group. That's how you survive life in a hostile world as God's elect exiles. I want to close in prayer. And as we go in prayer, I just want to remind you as we go before the Lord, this whole election thing was never meant to be controversial. It was meant to be a source of security and peace and gratitude in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the doctrine of election. We thank you so much that our salvation is not based upon our works or even upon our faith. It is based on your choice of us in eternity past. Thank you that you chose to love us, not because we're worthy, but simply because you chose to love us. Thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to die for us, to rise from the dead, to make salvation possible. Lord, we are so grateful that you have chosen us and taken us out of the mass of humanity rebelling against you and you have called us to be saved. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Father, that for every person in this room, Lord, that they would know the truth of the gospel, that they would find great security and peace in the gospel, that they would know that they're going to spend eternity with you and find great security in that. And Lord, I I pray that as we go out from here, Lord, that we would be a group of people who imitate Jesus Christ, that, that we would find the good life, not in our circumstances, but in the imitation of Christ, that we would follow his example living lives that even in the midst of struggle and difficulty and persecution, lives that honor and glorify you, lives that are full of joy and peace and significance. That's what we pray, Lord. Help us to live the good life like Jesus did. 
We pray that you would teach us and train us, mold us and make us more and more like him, all for his glory. In his name we pray, amen. All right, you're dismissed. I'll see you next week.